Um, okay, here's the thing. We should have tonight and next week in the book of Exodus, and then we will be done with our second book on our journey through the Bible. Before we begin Leviticus, I want to just take one night just, uh, just, to, just to worship. And um, I've invited a uh, friend of mine who leads worship. In fact, if you guys have been coming recently, Michelle and James were just here. They had the kind of electronic band. They're going to come back. And then we've invited their church and another church uh, as well to join us. Um, <clears throat> for the most part, it will just be singing. We'll do some readings from the book of Exodus, kind of just to review. Um, we'll take some time for prayer. That's going to be on the 16th, so that's not this coming Sunday, but the following one. Um, as everything we do here is, it's, it's an open invitation, so if you know someone who'd like to come, feel free to bring them out. Okay, now that I've set a deadline for ourselves, we better get started. Um, we're picking up tonight in Exodus chapter 31. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, you should find a Bible stuck in the back of a pew nearby. Exodus would be the second book of the Bible, and then you can turn to chapter 31. I'd actually hoped to finish chapter 31 last week, but part of me is kind of glad that we didn't. Because you'll notice as we go through chapter 31 and then jump into 32 that the change, the transition there is drastic. And I think it's to be as such. So I'm kind of glad we get to make the transition tonight uh, instead of having paused between chapters. Um, Moses is still on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood. God has been laying out plans um, for all of Israel's worship to be, quote, according to the pattern which I have shown you on the mountain. It's very well designed. It's very intentional. Um, we've looked at all of it, and we'll get the chance to do so again next week because these things are so important to the author of Exodus um, that he records not just God's plan over the course of five chapters, but also the building of it over the course of another five chapters. But in between those chapters, there's an interruption. More on that later. Let's go ahead and finish up God's instructions, beginning in chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work every craft. And so God's designed this tabernacle, all of its instruments, and clothing for the priesthood, and now he guarantees Moses that he has selected a particular person from the tribes of Israel who he's filled with the ability to pull the whole job off. You'll notice he's a master craftsman. He works in all sorts of areas, not just a single medium, but all that are... <coughs> all that are going to be used. It mentions specifically that he's got all intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship, but notice it adds as well that he has filled him with the Spirit of God. And so this man, Bezalel, uh, Bezalel there we go, we'll stick with that for tonight, Bezalel, uh, he has in some way divinely empowered him for the part he's about to play. 
it wouldn't be too far gone to say that he has given him spiritual gifts. Now, if you read the New Testament and you get into Paul's letters, uh, in fact, you'll find some of it in Peter's letters as well, you'll discover that God has uniquely equipped individual Christians for the sake of the whole church. What it says is that by uh, the will of his spirit, he has given unique gifts to each part of the body. He compares those unique, unique gifts to the unique functions of our physical bodies. And so you have fingers and you have toes, you have eyes and you have ears. In the same way, the church is diverse in its ability for the sake of the body, for the rest of the church. If you're interested in reading more about the New Testament lists of spiritual gifts, it's relatively easy to rem- remember. You can look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. One of the things you'll notice when you look at all four of those lists is that they're all different. That sometimes they have the same gifts, sometimes there's unique gifts that aren't included in others. Ephesians 4 actually lists not not gifts, but gifted persons. So not teaching, but teachers. Not, uh, Not the gift of apostleship, but apostles. Not evangelism, but evangelists. And so each list is unique. In fact, even when they do list the same gifts, they don't always list them in the same way or in the same order. I think it's best then to think of all of those lists of gifts as being not exhaustive, not complete. So I'm relatively comfortable saying that here we have a man who is gifted and these are similar to the spiritual gifts talked about in the New Testament, but these focus particularly on the arts. It's fascinating that this is the first place in the Bible where it says that somebody will be filled with the Spirit and the things that this person is going to do are artistic in nature. I bring this up because, uh, because sometimes I talk with Christians that can't seem to find themselves in the church, in the body of Christ, um, and they wonder if just because there is no such thing, for example, as a worship leader referenced in the New Testament, Uh, if there's any place for them in the church. Because there's no painters or sculptors or these types of things, is it possible that that's just something they do on the side and has very little to do with God's will for their life? I would point them to this passage and remind them that God gives all good things. All gifts come from him. And so here you can look as kind of a prototype or as a hero to Bezalel, this man who is uniquely gifted for the building of the tabernacle. Now, why does God do this? I would point to just two simple reasons. The first is because God is designing something beautiful, okay? No Pinterest fails are allowed with this, right? He doesn't leave it up to man to decide what a cherubim looks like. He intentionally gives somebody the God-given ability to stitch these into the fabric of the tabernacle. He doesn't, you know, just settle for our best effort He enables this man and others, as we'll see, to do the job. The second thing I would point out to you, um, the reason why God does this, is because the tabernacle, once again, is more than just beautiful. It's intentional. As we saw in the weeks past over and over again, it's designed according to the plan. And so all of the symbolism, all of the pictures, all of the artistry matters because it points to a broader understanding that God wants to show Israel, that wants to um, basically teach them by daily 
uh, daily object lessons by constantly being around and in the tabernacle and utilizing it, and so he doesn't leave that up to chance. He continues here and he <laughs> adds that he's not called just one man, but also an assistant. Verse 6, behold, I've appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Azamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given uh, to all able men ability that they may make all I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony, the mercy seat that's in it on all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstands with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basins and its stands, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for the service of the priest, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And so we see here that this man is given an entire team to work with, both an assistant and then a numerable group, but he's like the primary architect of the whole thing. He's the one calling the shots. Now it's at this point uh, that we get another section on the Sabbath, on this rule that God has given to Israel that every seventh day is to be set aside from the rest of the week, appointed as a day of rest and as a day of worship. But I want to remind you again structurally of why this occurs here. As God has been laying out a new tabernacle, there has been constant references all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. It lays out the tabernacle as if it's a recreation of the original creation. And that's why we have this lampstand that looks like a tree, just like the tree of life in the garden. That's why this is the place where the presence of God will dwell in the Holy of Holies as it was in the garden. Um, in the same way... Here we get to the final instructions and it focuses on the Sabbath. Just like God's, uh, God's creation was completed on the seventh day, the final time it says, and the Lord said to Moses, which side note is the seventh time in this section, it talks about the Sabbath as the seventh day was referred to and sanctified and set apart in creation as the Sabbath. So we read here in verse 13, you are to speak to all the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Okay, and so the keeping of the Sabbath was to be a sign. It was to be a picture of their relationship with God. It was to set them apart from the known world at that time, set them apart as unique. And they, when people would ask and say, why do you always take the seventh day off? They would say, that's because we're the people of Jehovah and he created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. It continues here, verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And so the consequences here are laid out as being serious. Verse 15, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in the six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking, with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, the tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And so after this reminder of the Sabbath, now he has these two uh, tablets of stone. It says here that the, they are the tablets of testimony, which God wrote with his own finger. 
okay? Now we have to double back a little bit, but prior to the description of how the tabernacle and the priestly garments and such were to be built, we have what's called the Book of the Covenant. And prior to the Book of of the Covenant, we have what's known as the Ten Words, or we sometimes refer to them as the Ten Commandments. It's those that are written on these two tablets of stone. And although you may have seen them hanging, you know, in a Christian schoolhouse or on a courtroom wall, and you have some of the commandments on one and some on the other, most scholars believe that this uh, runs parallel to a practice in that day, an ancient practice known as a suzerain vassal treaty. You don't actually need to know that. But whenever those types of treaties were made between a sovereign and his vassals, they would make two copies of the stipulations and each keep a copy. Because Israel and God are dwelling together, because the tabernacle is there, both copies, his and theirs, if you will, are kept together, but they're most likely identical. Now, if you're interested, the reason they believe that this is in the same pattern as a suzerain vassal treaty is all the way from Exodus, Leviticus, and then also in Deuteronomy, it follows the exact same format of these documents. It has all the things. In Deuteronomy, we'll get to the blessings and the curses. That's following the same format of these documents. As we've seen before, it's not surprising that God uses human forms of communication to make himself known. Let me just point out to you that the Bible was written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is not inherently or necessarily the words God speaks, right? But he speaks through Hebrew language. He condescends to use Hebrew grammar. And as I've said before, Over and over again, that's very good news. It shows that God wants to be understood, and so he uses our rules. He plays by the rules of our language to convey who he is. And so in the same way here, he takes this this treaty that they would have been familiar with, that would have been just culturally normal, kind um, kind of like a modern peace treaty. You know, we can picture how that's supposed to go. We know that they're going to sit at the table, that they're going to put their signatures at the bottom. He takes this ancient practice and he uses it to convey what this relationship is like. So I want you to get the picture of what's about to happen in this transition. As we step into chapter 32, notice what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, who shall go before us? As for Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, I don't know if any of you have children, but maybe if you do, you've read the book Meanwhile Back at the Ranch. This is what this reminds me of, okay? Chronologically, we're not moving forward in time, but backwards, okay? So we've been watching what's been playing out on the top of the mountain, on the top of Mount Sinai, as Moses is receiving these instructions. But the rest of Israel is not present. They're not hearing this. In fact, we'll find out pretty soon that Moses has been gone for 40 days, okay? Now, as a side note, I want you to remember what God is doing with those 40 days. He's laying out the plans for the tabernacle, right? And what is the purpose of the tabernacle? So that God has a way to be present with his people, okay? Simultaneous to God making a way to dwell with Israel, Israel is coming up with a better plan, okay? They don't know that's what God's doing. They're just on hold. They're in a waiting pattern, right? They're sitting at the bottom of the, moment, uh, bottom of the mountain. They don't know how long Moses is going to be gone, and they're marking days on the calendar, and they're getting nervous. And like Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, 
they go, well, maybe we should do something about this. They jump into the gap, to the space and time, to the holding pattern. They can't handle waiting for God, so they decide to do something about it. And interestingly enough, it parallels in the most pantomime way what God was doing on the mountain. So God says, here I will find a way to dwell with you and go before you. And Israel goes, I don't know what happened to God. I don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, you need to make us a God who can go before us. They feel abandoned when in actuality that pause is because God is working to be with them more. Okay? And so it tells us this, and they gather around Aaron, the high priest, who you may remember from a few weeks ago was left in charge. They gather around him and they demand that he make them a god. Okay, read it with me again. Verse, uh, I guess it's in verse one, halfway through, long verse. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, notice that they tie the need for gods to the absence of Moses. Why is that? Because Moses has been their intermediary, right? It's not that God hasn't been present in the fire and the smoke, but you may remember all the way back in chapter 20 when God speaks directly out of that cloud to Israel, they go, that's too scary. Moses, you speak for us, okay? When God uh, parted the Red Sea, he used Moses holding out the staff, right? There's a correlation between these two things. And so because Moses isn't around, they feel abandoned by God, and they come to Aaron and say, make us an idol. So, verse 2, Aaron said to them, no way, that's crazy. Why would you do that? I wish. It'd be a very different story. What does he say? So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. He says, all I need is a little bit of money, right? Just bring me all of your gold, all of your earrings, bring me some jewelry. And he doesn't tell them what his plan is, but we see what it is in verse 3. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And so what does he do? He takes this donation of jewelry once again, there's a pantomime here. It's somewhat similar to God's plan. Do you remember what God's plan for the tabernacle was? That a free will offering would be taken and it would be the gold and the precious jewels and the fine linen and the, you know, all the materials were going to come from the people. Those self-same materials are now being devoted to a similar but absolutely different purpose, right? So the tabernacle was filled with gold and here they make a golden calf to worship. Now, why a cow? To be honest, we don't know, okay? I will tell you that later on, when the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms, and one of the kings is going, hey, Jerusalem isn't in my neck of the woods. If people still have to go there for worship, they're going to leave me and go back to the house of David. He makes two golden calves as well and sets them up in two places in his territory so people won't be tempted to go to where the temple is in Jerusalem. Okay. We also know that the cow was of significance in Egypt. So the idea of a golden cow is not necessarily a new idea. This isn't coming strictly out of the imagination of Aaron. Okay. Um, what's more important, we'll see, is not where they got the idea to personify their god in the form of a cow, but how appropriate that image is 
for who they are. And so what is the phrase that God is going to use constantly to speak of the people of Israel from here on? Stiff-necked, okay? That's cow imagery. That stubbornness that they're presenting is perfectly represented by this metal cow that they worship, okay? There's a really interesting, pause, there's a super boring but really interesting book by an author named G.K. Beale that's uh, titled, We Become What We Worship. And he points to this and explains this reality and shows that that's all the, always the way it is, that we, we first shape gods in our own image and then they shape us, right? And so we become what we worship. And so here, it's a perfect representation of themselves and it also becomes their characteristic as things go on. Now, we need to review the facts of this Because after the scene of the crime, when the interrogation happens, the testimony is not going to line up, and that's important. So I want you to notice again what happens here. Aaron calls for the people to bring gold, and then he fashions it into this golden cow. What happens next? So he fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They don't just create new gods. They give those gods the credit for everything we've read about in the book of Exodus. Okay? In fact, that language is intentionally familiar. When God reveals himself, what does he say? I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. And now the people say, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. Okay? It's an exchange. It's a transition. In fact, let's just notice the irony of what's going on here. Did this calf exist yesterday? No. Okay. Now, side note. The people didn't believe that this golden calf was their god. They did believe that it was a way to access their god. Okay. It was representative of their god. We know in our modern culture what a status symbol is, right? That little... uh, you know, Mercedes symbol on your car is not just so you know who made the car. It's to show that you drive a Mercedes, okay? That's how idolatry worked in the ancient world. That's why you could have multiple statues of the same God. You didn't believe that there were multiple gods, but you did identify yourself as a worshiper with that, and you also believed that through that you had access to your God. You may remember that intentionally the tabernacle was designed so there was no representation of God. In fact, what is the first commandment given in the ten? You will worship me and me alone. And what's the second? You will have no other gods before me and you will make no no graven images, right? And here they are. They're already just busting down the list of the ten commandments over this period, right? The covenant hasn't even been fully ratified yet and they're already breaking it, okay? Verse five, when Aaron saw this, saw what? When Aaron saw that the people were pleased, they look at what he built and they went, yep, that's it. That's our God. This is perfect. Thanks, Aaron. When Aaron saw that, verse 5, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, two things. First off, the first thing he does is he starts to build the rest of what's needed for worship. And so he's got a God. Now he needs an altar. He's laying out a system of worship. Second one is he says, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord, and the word there is Jehovah. Okay, so in Aaron's mind, this God is directly related to Jehovah. 
somehow. But it's worth reminding ourselves that the peoples look at, people look at this and they refer to it as their gods, plural. Okay? And so it's a little bit hard to piece what's going on here, but that's because their religion is piecemeal. It's literally just growing out of nowhere, overnight, if you will. And so it's kind of a mess. It doesn't have any consistency. It doesn't need consistency. It provides what they need, which is an excuse for what happens next. Okay? And so he says, tomorrow will be a feast, and verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. Now there's a parroting, once again, there's a parody here that we need to see. These two offerings, the burnt offering and the peace offering, when they occur together, alone, apart from other offerings, there's only one other place in the book of Exodus. That's when they ratify the covenant a few chapters ago. Okay, and so they're, they're, like I said, we're watching them roll out towards a completely different covenant, towards a completely different worship. They're not merely abandoning the true worship of their God. They're also simultaneously creating a false worship. And so notice what it says next. So they bring these burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay. Now, when it puts these three together, eat, drink, and play, you need to recognize that that's not as timid as it sounds. It's not just a feast or a barbecue and volleyball, okay? In fact, the word for play here that's used consistently throughout Genesis, Exodus, in fact, fact, all the way through the Pentateuch, in all the other places, it always has a sexual overtone. And so when Isaac gets caught playing with his wife in the courtyard, it's this word, right? Abimelech doesn't look out and see them playing ping pong and go, wait a minute, they're husband and wife. He sees something more overtly sexual, okay? That's the word here. And so if we had to take eat, drink, and play and put them together, the best modern word we have is orgy, okay? This feast is out of, the con- out of control, wild party. This is Israel gone wild. That's what this is, Okay? And I just want you to notice how quickly this all happens. We're not told where along in the 40-day period they decide they've had enough. But when they do, by tomorrow, they've gone off the complete deep end. And I'll be honest, it's relatively easy to cross our arms and shake our heads and go, what are you thinking, Israel? But I want you to recognize there's something bigger going on here. Okay? We've been talking a lot about patterns tonight, and as I've mentioned before, the author of the Pentateuch, in my opinion, most likely Moses himself, because we've already seen, write it down, write it down. But the author of the Pentateuch, he's intentionally going back to creation. And so he lays out the tabernacle like a new world is being presented, and what happens after Genesis 2? Genesis 3, with the fall. We see the same thing playing out here. God's got this plan. It's a brave new world. It's perfectly set out. And golden calf. In fact, this, as you can imagine, becomes an important event in Israel's history that the Bible constantly refers to. No doubt when the author of 2 Kings is telling us what's going on with uh, Rehoboam as he builds these two golden calves, we should be making dot connections, right? How swift Israel is to return to something even though they know better. They should know better. This is where it all started. 
Psalm 106 provides a commentary on this that helps us to understand what's going on. The Psalms are effectively the corporate worship hymnal of Israel. So they spend a lot of time taking the stories of the Old Testament and placing them in a context of worship, which I'll remind you doesn't just mean praising God for who he is, but it also means confession of sin. It also means reminding yourself of what is and what is not. And Psalm 106 falls into that category. It's to be a reminder, a warning, if you will. I want to draw your attention to chapter 19. It says here, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now, I've spoiled a little bit of what's to come, but I want you to see how the psalmist emphasizes here the exchange. What did they have? The living and true God, the creator of the universe who did miraculous things to bring them out of Egypt. What did they take instead? What did they exchange it for? A piece of metal in the image of a cow that eats grass. Okay. Now, when it uses here, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox, you might, might have bells ringing in your biblical Rolodex, okay? And this is why I said we can't frown and shake, shake our fist at Israel for their foolishness, because in Romans chapter 1, Paul takes this same idea and says that this is universal to human nature. Listen to what he says. This is in Romans chapter 1. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, side note, the they here, you might as well read we, okay, because that's who Paul's talking about. He's talking about humanity as a whole. He continues here in verse 21, for all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He continues here, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul follows this same paradigm and says that this applies to all humanity. That there's enough about God in the world we live in, in the things that he has made, that even the invisible attributes of God, Paul says, are clearly seen. And that's not just the world that is made out there, that's the world that is made as in you. For example, you have a conscience. You have a sense of right and wrong. And if there are rules, it points to the reality of a rule maker. Okay? 
But we deny those things, we suppress even the truth that we have in unrighteousness, but it never stops there. You cannot just reject God without replacing him. And so he says, they gave up the wisdom of God, and in their foolishness, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for worshiping created things. But I want you to notice that it doesn't end there. He says that because of that, they also exchanged righteous behavior for immoral behavior, which is the same thing we see here, right? How quickly they are, not just to throw out their theology, but their ethics, because the two go hand in hand. Okay, listen. John Calvin, the French reformer, probably puts it best. He says, the human heart is a factory of idols. And you say, but wait, I've never bowed down to a little object in my life. Okay, just because the idolatry of our world is more hidden doesn't mean it's less prevalent. Okay? Idolatry, according to the Bible, is looking to anything to be your savior, to be your security, to give you happiness, or to give you meaning. It is the thing that fills in the blank at the end of this sentence. Without this, life wouldn't be meaningless, blank. Or this sentence, if only I had blank, then everything would be okay. Or this sentence, as long as I have blank, everything will be fine. Okay. When we reject the living God, we make for ourselves false gods. And the problem is that those false gods fail us. In fact, I was reading uh, an author by the name of Christopher Wright today. And he said, false gods always fail. It's the only thing you can depend on them to do. Okay. Why? Because they're not real because they're not God. And when we do so, it also changes us, right? And so we're made in the image of God, we're made to reflect God, but when we make something in our image and in the image of creation, when we turn to these things in God's created world for our ultimate significance, it turns on us, okay? And it changes who we are. Idolatry dehumanizes us. And we see that playing out in Israel and it happens right at the beginning, and you have to recognize that you can't write yourself out of this passage. If I were there, it would be different. Maybe you've never been there, but you've been somewhere, and it's not different. And so this is happening, and God knows it's happening, and here we jump back up to the mo uh, mountain, and God speaks to Moses. Uh, let me make one other point here. Israel turns to false gods despite what happened in Egypt. Do you see why that's significant? In Egypt, the entire pantheon of Egyptian religion is radically challenged over and over again in the plagues. They watch as the pantheon is dismantled uh, pillar by pillar. Every god is shown to be not God, and here they are falling into the same trap. Now, continuing on, verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, the pronouns there are probably significant. God usually says, My people who I brought out of Egypt, and now it's Moses, your people who you brought out of Egypt. Okay? Now, that's not like a mom blazing, blaming the dad and saying, These children are your children, right? Uh, it's more likely already showing the distance here, okay? There was a time where Israel as a whole were with God. Now they're on the other side of Moses. Moses is still with God. 
Israel is, is past them. He stands between them. We'll see this play out more. Verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Remember I told you that's cow imagery, right? Just like uh, a cow is stubborn and when you try and get it to go somewhere, it doesn't always go. That's how he pictures Israel. He says that they're stiff-necked. Now, verse 10, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, so God makes Moses an offer here. He says, don't stand in my way, Moses. Don't stop me. I'll wipe them out and then I'll make a new nation out of your lineage. Right now, technically, God could still keep the promises he made to Moses' predecessors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Moses is one of their descendants. Okay? But I want you to notice what more is going on here, and we need to view this from two sides. We need to think about what God is doing, and then we need to think about the place that he's putting Moses in. First off, with what God is doing. It almost reads like God is asking for permission. Doesn't it? He says, don't try and stop me, Moses. Now, just as a side note, God has already demonstrated that he's all-powerful, that he do, does whatever he wants. So why would God say something like this? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Moses is going to intercede for the people, and God is going to relent. Or if you have an older translation, it's actually going to say that he repents, or maybe even that he changes his mind. So what do we have going on here? Do we have a, um, a capricious God? whose will can be changed by a good argument, who gets super angry and Moses has to calm him down? I wouldn't say so. Instead, instead, what God is doing here is opening the door for intercession. But that opening the door requires Moses to step up and play the part. God doesn't play it for him. God doesn't intercede himself. He needs an intercessor but in doing this, and this is the Moses side of the scenario, he tempts Moses with a different outcome. The question is here, what does Moses truly want? Will he settle for something that's self-promoting? Moses, wouldn't you like to be the new Abraham? In the same way that, the, that Noah was the new Adam, wouldn't you like to be the only survivor of this, the one true, true faithful, the one righteous? You know that Israel's constantly whining and complaining about you. How about we just start from scratch, just you and me? Now, I want you to notice how Moses responds, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and so said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Okay, the first thing he does is he changes the pronouns and he says, why, why bring about wrath when you're the one who brought them out? They've only gotten here by your grace. They're only here because you brought them out. And then he continues, he says in verse 12, Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Notice where he goes here. First, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't defend Israel because Israel is indefensible. He doesn't say, come on, they don't know any better or, I mean, I have been up here a long time. I'm starving. I can only imagine what they're thinking. None of that. The second thing he doesn't do is, 
is he doesn't take the bait, and I want to be careful in the use of that language, but he doesn't take the interest of just starting over. Instead, what is he concerned about here? It's not merely Israel, is it? He says, if you do this, the Egyptians will see. Okay, effectively what he's saying here is, for your name's sake, don't do this. What Moses is most interested in, what drives him as an intercessor, is God-oriented. We'll see this develop more and more, but we've got to lay it on the table right now. He says, for your name's sake, don't do this. Moses, I'll make a great name for you. And Moses says, no, your name. Because of your name, don't do this. He continues. Uh, He says, verse 12 again, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. The next thing he says is remember. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So the second thing, first he says, remember the world's watching. Remember that you're doing, remember what's the whole point of the book of Exodus, that they may know, right? It's that language that Moses speaks. And then he says, remember your promises, And he does something interesting here. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. How are they usually listed? Abraham, Isaac, and Israel's original name, Jacob. Why does he say Israel here? Because he's making a direct connection between Israel the person and Israel the people. But more importantly than that, when he quotes this promise and says, hey, you promised to multiply the descendants of Israel, not destroy them, there may be more going on here. Why did God promise to multiply the people of Israel? For that, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, the first promise, the one given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And what he says is, I will bless you, Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless that nation, and anyone who curses that nation, I will curse, and anyone who blesses that nation, I will bless, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, and so even here, there may be an underlying hint of for the sake of your name, for the sake of your big mission. And then he finishes here saying, and the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Now, that does not mean that God has forgiven Israel. That comes later. Now, he just doesn't bring about destruction. He doesn't wholeheartedly and completely destroy them. Nonetheless, here it says that he relented. This is one of the challenges of understanding who God is. Okay? Does it matter that Moses prayed? Isn't God significantly, you know, um, immutable, meaning that nothing changes him? He's the unchanging God. So, what does prayer have to do this, with this? And then, like I said, the word here is the one that's used throughout the Bible for repentance. Does this mean that God was about to do evil and because of Moses' intercession, he avoided it? He turned away from it? Interestingly enough, the self-same author, the author of the Pentateuch, says this in Numbers 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers in 23. Listen to this. Verse 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie 
or a son of man that he should change his mind. Okay? So God here, speaking through, uh, through this prophet known as Balaam, says that the difference between him and man is that he doesn't lie and he doesn't change his mind. So what do we do then? Because we have two verses written in the same book, not just the Bible, but the Pentateuch, these five books that go together. I'll remind you, just a side note, that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all begin with the same word, and. Okay, one story. Does God change his mind or not? Okay. How do we reconcile this? We are already seeing in our text in Exodus some hints in this direction. Right? It is God who opens the door for intercession. He's the one who says Moses and puts him in this position. See, there's a passage in the prophets that resembles this story, but it's slightly different. I believe it's in the book of Ezekiel, and what God says is, I looked for an intercessor to stand in the gap, and I found none. Here, I'll add another verse on top of that. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here's the clencher. This one's also from Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, verse 13 says this. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he's taken by robbery, and walks into the statutes of life not doing injustice, he shall surely live and not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just, is right, just and right. He will surely live. In other words, God says, I bring threats of judgment for repentance. Okay? And it's according to his character that if there's repentance, then God won't bring about judgment. And so here's the point. In the same way, intercession is a means God uses, God appointed, okay? To some degree, even what's happening here is more of a change in Moses than it is in God. I'll remind you that Israel was a rebellious and stiff-necked people when God brought them out of Egypt. They haven't changed. What's happening here is just showing who they really are. Moses, interestingly enough, Last time he interceded with God, it was a very different story. You may remember at the burning bush, God says, Moses, I've chosen you. I'm going to use you to deliver the people. And Moses says, really? Are you sure? Right? And every argument he brings against God is self-centered. But I can't. But I'm not. But what if they do to me? Right? It's all focused there. The Moses we're reading about now has come a long way, baby. Right? He's really changed. And even here, God is shaping Moses deeper into the role of what we would call a mediator. Okay? And so here's the point. Should you pray for those who have walked away from God, for those who do not know God? I mean, pragmatically, if you're a Christian, you do it all the time. God, please draw them to yourselves. Why do you do that? Because the Bible tells us to. 
Okay, and so we can do it with confidence because our prayers are a means God uses to do his will. Now, why does he do that? I don't actually know if I understand. But we can do it with confidence. And so Moses enters in, and basically what he says is, God, be yourself. God, do according to who you are. Keep your word because you're a keeper of promises. Promote your name because you promote your name. And God does according to his character. He responds to the issue here. Now, I'm not much of one for hypotheticals, but if you ask, well, what if Moses hadn't? I don't know. But he did. And that was the plan. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, why is it telling us so much detail about the tablets? I'm not going to spoil it for you. Just hold on to that. What do we see here? They're full, top to bottom, written, written by God himself. That's emphasized. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people and they shouted, he said to Moses, now where did Joshua come from? You may have forgotten, so let me remind you, Joshua is halfway down the mountain waiting for Moses. And he's been there for this entire duration. So he also doesn't know what's going on in Israel. And so he sees Moses coming down. Now they're walking together. They get close to the camp and Joshua hears this noise. What does he say? Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory. Sorry, Joshua. Nope, Moses. There we go. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And so all Joshua can hear in the camp is such a loud noise, it sounds like they're being attacked. Okay? And Moses says, I wish it was war. Instead, it's loud, drunken singing. That's what they hear. And so they come into the camp, verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Okay, now there's an interesting paradigm here. When Moses stands with God in these passages, he represents Israel, but when he's with the people, he represents God. In fact, that is what a mediator does. He mediates. And so here he comes down the mountain, and now God's anger is his anger, and he sees the golden calf, he sees the worship, and he takes this blessing in the Ten Commandments, written by the hands of God, and he throws it at the ground and breaks it. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not merely an outburst of anger. Okay. A few weeks ago, my son got so angry, he went in his room and he broke a bunch of furniture. I know what that's like. I've been there. That's not what this is. Okay. Moses is breaking the Ten Commandments because they're already broken. Right? Because they've already shattered the covenant. This was the physical representation of God's loyalty to Israel and Israel's loyalty to God, and they've already broken it. Okay? And so he symbolically breaks this in the same way because remember, a covenant is kind of like marriage. Imagine a woman who knows she's been cheated on and she takes off her wedding ring and he gives it, she gives it back. That's what this is, okay? So verse 20, next, he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help reading that and thinking of a dog, right? That's like rubbing your nose in it. That's, that's like what this is. 
There may be something more significant going on here, but at the very least, I want you to see what he's demonstrated here, okay? He's demonstrated that this God is no God at all, right? He breaks it down, he grinds it up, and then he throws it in the river and he makes them drink it, okay? They have to face the reality, the consequence of what they've done. But we'll see there might be more going on. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? I want you to notice what he does here. He recognizes both that there must be an explanation for why Aaron has done this, and no matter what, it's his fault, right? Who has done the great sin here? Aaron, and he's brought it upon the people. But he knows there might be some sort of reciprocity here. In fact, it reads like he's trying to say, Aaron, was this vengeance? Were you trying to get back at the people? But either way, I want you to notice what happens next, because what should happen? Confession. Okay? If we are going through the garden, Genesis chapter 3 again in the fall, this is where Moses, standing in the place of God, says, Adam, what have you done? And Moses says to Aaron, what have you done? Notice what he says. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. First thing he does is he blames all the people. He says, you know what they're like, Moses. And then notice what he says next. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now it is amazing how precise his testimony of their bad behavior is. It is word for word. He doesn't miss a vowel. Now notice when he operates as a self-witness, and notice what he says. Um, Verse 24, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Right? What does he say here? He says that I took it, and I threw it in, and miraculously, this idol popped out. What did it say in the passage we read in the last chapter? That he called for the gold that he fashioned it with his own hands into an idol, okay? Now, that excuse is about as ridiculous as it comes, but all excuses are just that ridiculous. Remember Adam's in the garden? It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. You mean that woman that a second ago you said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this great gift that God had given? In fact, notice, here, Just like Adam, because when Adam blames Eve, he doesn't really blame Eve. He blames the giver of Eve, right? It's the woman that you gave me, Lord. This is your fault. If you had made me a better woman, maybe try model two, right? The prototype is faulty. This is your fault, God. In the same way, Aaron blames the miraculous. This is the equivalent of saying, if God didn't want me to worship idols, then why did it just appear out of nowhere? And the truth is, That question is not so far from the way we justify our own behavior all the time. These desires are just desires you made me with. If I'm not allowed to have sex with whoever I want, then why give me such a desire for sex? Right? Why put me in a world where there's all of these temptations? This is the world you built, God. But Moses is having none of it to the degree that he doesn't even answer him. One last thing before we move on. Can you see the contrast here between Aaron and Moses? It's going to get stronger. Moses stands in the gap for the people. Aaron throws the people under the bus. 
Moses is going to take ownership for sins that aren't his. Aaron won't even look his own sins in the eye. I can't help but think the, uh, the contrast is important. So verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Okay, it doesn't explain what broken loose means here, but run wild is probably a good paraphrase. paraphrase. And he says this is something that Aaron's allowed to happen. And then notice what's concerning to him, that this is happening in front of the nations. Okay, that there's people looking on. This crazy, raucous orgy can be heard for miles. Okay, this is Israel who people heard had crossed through the Red Sea, who had been miraculously provided for in the wilderness, and now they're having this crazy wilderness orgy. You know what this is? It's Burning Man. And that's where Moses' concern is. That's the only way I understand to explain what happens next. Verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from, from gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you. Kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So he gathers all who will come to him. It's only the Levites who come. They put on a sword. He sends them out, and they kill 3,000 people. Remember, the number we were given as they left Israel was 600,000 men. Okay? So this is a relatively small portion, but it's still tremendously serious. And so we have a couple of questions to ask. The first one I po- want to point you to is that there's still going to be a judgment on the people of Israel, a plague. And God has already relented from the disaster that he meant to bring on them. So is this judgment? Maybe. But here's what makes more sense to me. Moses' concern is not that Israel gets what's coming to them. It's that this craziness that's broken out in front of the nations ends right now. Okay? He's zealous for the name of God. Later we'll, get on to, uh, we'll move on to a guy uh, who's a priest, and we'll see the same zeal for the name of the Lord, but we'll leave that on the table for now. But why these 3,000? Are they the leaders of this thing? Are they the worst offenders? Are they the ones who refuse to stop? We're not really told. But this is something that's really interesting. Later on in the book of Numbers, a process is given for knowing when a wife is unfaithful. And effectively, if a husband is suspicious that his wife is cheating on him, he brings her before the priest and she drinks this concoction, which is basically a written curse crumbled into a drink and then she drinks it. And if her stomach goes sour and shows signs that she's been affected by this, God just says, this is how you'll know. I'll help you out. I'll prove that this is going on. And as a side note, if that sounds oppressive to you, let me remind you that that also means that she can be validated as innocent, which in that day and age is a huge deal because it doesn't just go, well, I'll never feel like she's innocent, so I'm just going to divorce her. No, if the proof isn't there, that's not allowed, okay? But some commentators have pointed out that, they have, that Moses has done something similar here, that he's made all of Israel drink the dust of their idol. And so maybe what's going on here has some sort of manifestation that leads this, okay? I don't know, but here's some inferences we can draw from it. For one, this happening is serious business. 
And not just because they're breaking arbitrary rules, it's because they are pursuing the destruction of their lives and the lives of Israel. It's really easy for us to feel like worshiping a foreign god is, uh, that death penalty is too harsh for that, but that's because we don't tend to see things in the big eternal reality picture that the Bible presents. We're not just talking life or death, we're talking eternal life or death. Remember that as Israel comes into the land of Canaan, those people are so far gone, God requires them to put them down like old yeller. Right? There's no fixing this. They've gone rabid. And so Moses takes this seriously, and he deals with it. And so 3,000 are killed, and then, um, and then ch- 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 verse 29. Then Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, and each one at the cost of his son and his brothers, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That, those are hard words. Today you had to choose between the God you've been called to be a priest for and the children, some of them yours, and the brothers, some of them yours, that have rebelled against. That's a huge deal. Now this is different. This is not the world we live in. We live on the other side of the cross, and so there is a difference here. The world we live in isn't the same. Sin and the consequences of sin, the reality of sin are, but the way that we deal with it is different. But Paul says the same thing to the church in Corinth, that they need to deal with sin seriously. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, therefore, take this man who's in unrepentant, rebellious sin, who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and saying, oh, it's no big deal, and cut him off from the church, separate from him, The words he actually uses is surrender him to the devil. Why? So that even in the destruction of his flesh, his soul might be saved. Okay? And Jesus says the same thing about following him. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. There will be division. Father against uh, daughter and son against mother and husband against wife. Jesus says, if you do not hate your husband or your brother or your son or your father, then you cannot be my disciple. And that's a semantic, semantic expression. He's not saying that you should hate your parents. He's saying that if there has to be a cho- choice, if they draw a line in the sand and says, either you're part of a family or you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. Okay? And so this is still part of what it means to follow Jesus. So... Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Remember, all that, all that Moses has done is so far is stand in the gap and spare them from destruction. But now he says, let me go see if I can make atonement. Let me go see if I can have your sin put away. In other words, he says, let me see if I can get you forgiven. And so that's what he does. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. Notice once again that this begins with a frank and honest expression of sin. This is confession. Moses doesn't try and mediate uh, in the way where he's like, look, it wasn't really that big of a deal. No, he owns up and he says, this is a huge deal. They have sinned a great sin. But notice what he says next. But now if if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, this is just a side note, uh, this book, but it'll occur again, and sometimes it's referred to as the book of life. 
You see, in, in ancient times, if you had a big enough city, you would keep a roster of all the people who lived in the city, and if they moved out of town, you would blot out, right? Erasers, rubber erasers don't exist, so you just blot it out. They're no longer part of it. So the Bible envisions the relationship with God like this, a book of life that all names are written in unless they're blotted out. And Moses says something really profound here. He says, if you won't forgive the people, then take my life instead. That's the heart of a mediator, right? Earlier I told you that Moses... Uh, Moses won't take his own glory, won't take his own destiny. Here he's willing to take their sin. He's willing to die in their place. Take my life instead, God. Now, he continues here. He says, Please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. Do you know what he says there? God says no. He says, No, I'm not going to take your life for theirs. That's not going to work. He continues, though, and he says, But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels should go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they'd made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So he says effectively no here. And he says, now go to the land. I will send an angel before you. Right? That's grace. They don't deserve to still go to the promised land. But God says, I'll make sure you get there. Miraculously, I'll take care of you. But there's still going to be consequences. Their sin will bear on them. And then it mentions here that there's a plague. Okay? Now, we got to keep going because this is where things get really interesting. Chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now, almost word for word, we've seen that before. That's exactly what God said he was going to do, that he was going to send. But there it said, the angel. And here it says, an angel. He had promised that all of their victories were going to be God-given victories. And it's still the case here, but he's not sending the angel of his name, the one that represents him, but just any old angel will do. In fact, notice what he says next. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so he says, I'm still going to fulfill the promises, but I'm not going to travel with you. No more tabernacle. No more presence of the people. You still get the land as a consolation prize, but my relationship with the people is severed, okay? Now, notice what it says next in verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Now, that's striking. They hear, I'm gonna take you into the land. They hear, I'm going to give you victory. They hear, it's, you still get the land filled with milk and honey, but I will not be with you, and their hearts are broken. That's contra what we saw in chapter 32, verse 1. What did they want out of Aaron? Give us a God who will go before us. But now they recognize that's not enough. This is repentance. They don't just want the gifts of God. They want God himself. Now they see the disaster that is idolatry. I don't know if you've gotten in that place in your life, but I did. I realized that everything I accomplished in my life was not just not as good as God, it was destroying me. It had enslaved me. I had not made good choices. 
And it wasn't enough that God would just say, well, I'll forgive you and you can go to heaven if it wasn't a restoration of relationship. And so what we see here is, is true repentance. Their heart has changed. It says, no one put on their ornaments. Why does it say that? Verse 5, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So no, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. The same jewelry that they made this God out of, he says, don't even wear it anymore. In fact, most likely they go on not wearing it for the rest of the wilderness wandering, okay, as a reminder of this incident. But I want you to notice that even in God's judgment here, there's mercy. Why doesn't he want to be present with the people? It's too dangerous. He can't dwell with these covenant breakers and have them survive it. And so he promises to travel at a distance. Verse 6, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. For the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay? Deuteronomy as well. It's not until Joshua that they finally put jewelry back on as a constant reminder. Now, what was life like in this interim period? Verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Is this the tabernacle? No. Notice. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Where was the tabernacle to be? At the heart of Israel. Now, way out in the distance is this tent, so Moses can continue to meet with God, so they can still hear from God, but he's not dwelling with the people. It continues here. Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now, this feels like merely a punishment, like when one of your kids is misbehaving and they have to watch everyone else eat ice cream, right? Moses here is still enjoying his relationship with the Lord, but at a distance, and they're only watching from the outside. But there's more going on. That's the only way this can work. This is a, uh, you know, a caveat relationship. This is plan B. Verse 10, And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. They were supposed to come and worship at the tabernacle. Now they worship at their own home door with, the, with you know, this stand-in tabernacle at a distance. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so when he's not using the tent, he leaves Joshua behind, way out away from the other people. In the same way that Joshua was half up, half up the mountain while Moses was all the way up, the division is maintained. At this point, God's great plan for the tabernacle to I will dwell in the midst of you is off. Notice what Moses does. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Now he's either saying here, I'm not satisfied with anonymous angel. Or he's saying, you've said you're taking me and this people and now I'm not sure any of them are going to survive. He's imagining getting to the promised land and crossing the border as the last survivor. Okay, one of those is possible. But notice what he says here. He says, Yet you have said, I know you by name and, and have also found favor in my sight. He says, Me? 
Me, I know you like a friend. Me, we speak face to face. Me, I stand here by your favor. I still have a relationship with you. Notice what he says, verse 13. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. What does he say here? He says, show me again the God that I know, the God of grace. Demonstrate your character and take these people back. They are your people, God. And notice how God responds, verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now that sounds like good news because you're not reading the Hebrew. See, here's a challenge about translating both Hebrew and Greek into English. In Hebrew and Greek, there's a way to refer to the first person person pronoun separate from the first person plural pronoun. Sorry, this is third person, okay? Me is first person, you. Okay, that's what we're talking about. In English, you can refer to you, as in I'm talking to one of you, or you, as I'm talking to all of you, right? You are the church. You are a Christian. In Hebrew and in Greek, they have a way to say something different. The closest we have is the southern expression of you all, right? Y'all, okay? Here, when God speaks to Moses, what he says is in the singular. He says, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. That's what makes sense of how Moses responds. Notice, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, uh, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Once again, he says, this is about your name. This is about your glory. What sets Israel apart is that God dwells with us. He presses the issue here, verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is what a mediator does. Mediator stands in the gap. Moses is unwilling to abandon his people. And he says, forgive them, if not for their sake, then for yours. If not for their sake, then because you have shown me favor. Now notice, Moses doesn't stop there. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, says the Lord. Now at first glance, this sounds like Moses is saying, while we're, about, while we're at it, can you give me an experience? Can I have an encounter? It's like, I've, you know, I'm on a roll here asking for things. So while we're at it, can you show me your glory? More likely, what he wants here is an evidential promise, right? He wants proof that God will do what he says he will do, okay? And so God says, I will make my goodness, all my goodness, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And so God says, I'm going to do this, but he adds a statement here. He says, but just so you know, I'm showing you my glory because of who I am. My grace is not going to be under the thumb of Moses, right? I'm not going to do this because Moses said so or because you're such a great mediator. It's up to my grace who I will be gracious to. It's up to me who I will have compassion on. He makes a distinction there. Now, this verse becomes tremendously important to the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. And frankly, we just don't have time to look at it tonight. 
But I wanted to reference it, and then I wanted to continue. Verse 20, he said, But you cannot see my face, for man will not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and when my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. He says, Moses, you can't take a full frontal encounter with the living God. You'll never survive. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a little cave, and then he starts getting anthropomorphic here. He says, I'm going to cover that cave with my hand, and I'm going to pass by, and all you'll see is my back or my afterglow or the radiation of my presence. We, the word is incredibly unique in its usage here. But either way, he's going to get an experience, but not the full-blown experience. Verse 23, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now this is good news, is it not? What is, what is uh, God doing here? He's reestablishing the covenant. Let's try this again. Let's start again from the beginning. Moses had said, forgive your people, He's going to do it, okay? And so he says, bring two new tablets. Verse two, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Then the Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a resetting of all the pieces, okay? And then we're also seeing the fulfillment. What did Moses ask? Show me your glory. And he says, I will, and I will proclaim my name before you. That's what's happening here. And so it says here, the Lord uh, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now this is such an important passage. The first thing I want you to notice is this isn't just a bare naked experience. If Moses is going to encounter God, he's going to encounter his character. In fact, if he's going to understand God in a more deep way, he's going to understand it in a self-proclamation of who God is. God says, this is who I am, okay? We have the same thing today. If you want to know God deeper, then he's given you his word so that you might know him. This is the same word that created light from darkness, the same word, right? In the New Testament, when we get to Jesus, how can we really know God? The word became flesh. Now, the second thing I want to point out is that this is somewhat related to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. In fact, specifically, the idolatry commandment. Why are they not to create idols? Because the Lord is a jealous God who has compassion on generations for the thousand but brings punishment on those who, right? That's right here in this same passage. But not only that, we have this broad statement of God's character. Now, how do I know this is important? Because it is quoted over and over again in the Old Testament. In Psalm 86, word for word, in the prophet Nahum, in the prophet Joel, in the prophet Jonah. When Jonah says, Lord, I knew you were the God who, this is who God is and this is how he knows who God is from this statement here. 
But here's what's striking about this. Look what it says about God. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Merciful meaning that he doesn't bring about judgment that some deserve. Gracious means that he gives things that uh, is more than people deserve. And then that he's slow to anger, meaning that he's patient or long-suffering. That he doesn't bring judgment directly when the crime is committed, but he's patient in waiting for people to repent. In fact, Peter says uh, that uh, the reason why everything isn't over in life, the reason why you're still living and breathing if you haven't repented, is because the Lord is long-suffering and patient and not willing that any should be judged, but that all should come to repentance. Paul says, don't mistake the long-suffering kindness of God for indifference. But he's long-suffering here. And then it says that he keeps steadfast love. That's hesed, loyalty. He's loyal for thousands. And then it says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiveness is part of his character. But notice what it says. But who will no means clean the guilty, or, or uh, clear the guilty. How can both of those things exist? How can he both forgive and make sure that guilt is dealt with? How can he be just in punishing and justifying in forgiveness. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 is the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? God brings Jesus' death on the cross because in the past he overlooked sin. But now he has become both just and the justifier of the ungodly. You see, why couldn't Moses be the mediator? Because he wasn't innocent. Because he wasn't perfect. But God sets up this tension in his character and he says, I am both the God who forgives and the God who meets out just punishment. How does he do that? He becomes a man in Jesus Christ and he takes that punishment on his own shoulders so that the punishment is fully paid so that forgiveness can be freely offered. And it sits right here in tension in the Old Testament in the character of who God is. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Notice here, the people haven't changed. Effectively, what Moses says here is, because the people are so stiff-necked, you have to come with us. Right? The only way this works is if you're right in our midst because we're such a mess. Salvation by a distance isn't going to work. You're going to have to come and dwell with us and be with us and be present. Verse 10, he said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all the people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Notice here, he's setting up all the pieces for the covenant again. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. He says, be careful as you go into the land. You won't have to make new idols there to worship. There will be plenty already there, so get rid of them. He continues, verse 15. Uh, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after the gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Notice that a primary image of idolatry there is unfaithfulness. 
right? Adultery, whoring, prostitution. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I think it's self-evident why he needs to remind him of that one. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time I appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, your male and livestock, your uh, firstborn cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. These are all the words of the uh, book of the covenant that we already read, the one that they broke. It's being restated here. Verse 21, six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at year end. Three times in the year shall all males appear before God, the God of Israel. Okay, no fresh appointed feast for golden calves, but keep the three that I've commanded annually. Verse 24, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Why does he add that? Because all the men are going to leave their homesteads all over Israel and head for Jerusalem. And so he reminds them here that nobody's going to invade while they're being obedient, right? So you can't operate as an excuse and say, I live too close to the Philistine border. If I just leave the women and children here, the Philistines are going to raid. God says, no, I'm going to take care of you. Verse 25, you shall not offer blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All these things we've read before, all of them we've talked about before, and notice here, verse 27, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you in Israel. So he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So God lays out the covenant again, another 40-day period. Here it reminds us that Moses was there in fasting, not just from food, but for drink. That is miraculous, okay? The average human can't make it more than uh, a week without water. Three days for most of us will do us in. But God preserves him here. And Israel sits patiently this time, right? And the covenant is restored. Now we have one last section here, and I want to touch on it very briefly. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Do you remember that scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where Richard Dreyfuss has that interaction in the middle of the night with a UFO, and when he wakes up in the morning, he's got a sunburn on half of his face? Okay, this is a little bit different than that. The word it says for Moses' face shown, the, the word it comes from is the word for horns. And so we should probably think of like radiance or beams of light. Uh, the, the Latin Vulgate actually translated this horns. So if you look at old medieval paintings of Moses, he actually has horns. Uh, but most likely here, there's some sort of reflection of the fact that he was talking with God. And so he comes down the mountain and he doesn't know it, but he's glowing. Okay, and it says next in verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. I would be too. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. 
Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put a veil over the face again until he went up to speak with him. Okay? So this bothers the people so much that Moses starts to wear a veil. And it's a little bit hard to understand what's going on here. What it seems to be saying is that Moses doesn't wear the veil when he's alone or when he's up the mountain because he doesn't care what he looks like and God doesn't care what he looks like. But when he's with the people, he knows that they're afraid, so he just wears this veil in front of his face. And the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is because the Apostle Paul does. In contrasting the old covenant that we're reading about here with the new covenant in Jesus Christ, he picks up of the... Uh, picks up this reality and he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we don't really have time to go there, so I'm just going to give you the gist and I'd encourage you to read it. What he points out is that that veil stands between Israel and the glory of God. And he says that all new converts of the new covenant, all people who follow Jesus, we have something better than something glorious behind a veil. We actually are not just observing the glory of God, but being transformed like Moses was, bearing that glory and going from glory to glory. Then he pushes it a little bit further, and this is what he says. He says, when the Jews read the Bible, it's as if they read it through a veil. Just like when they encounter God's reflection in Moses, they encounter it in a veil. And he says, but when you see the scriptures through Jesus Christ, the veil is removed and you see God face to face. Okay. What we've read about tonight has a good deal to do with distance, does it not? The distance between people like us and a holy God. And so this distance is threatened by Israel's behavior. This distance is personified by this tabernacle of meeting, this tent of meeting at a distance. It's personified by this veil. In fact, do you know the only other place in Exodus where the word veil is used? For the one that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. Right? Even the place where God's glory dwells in the tabernacle is going to be cut off from most people. But in Jesus, that is removed to the degree that it says that we can now boldly enter into the throne room of grace. In fact, just a side note, one little piece. The word that uh, Paul uses there with, for unveiled face, if he's pulling it from the right place, it actually is the word bold. Uh, because... Because boldness means to speak with face uncovered. That's where the word, where the imagery comes from. All the way back from the Aramaic, okay? And in the Greek, the connotation is there too. And so the idea that he's presenting is that the ministry of Jesus Christ is more bold because we have full access to God. Because the way has been paved, has been cleared, has been, the veil has been removed in Jesus Christ. And so he's not saying that this is a bad covenant. He's saying it's a good covenant, but the new covenant is better. Because the problem that most of the Old Covenant had to deal with, the distance, has been removed in Jesus Christ. So we have much to rejoice in. We'll go ahead and finish there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a new covenant. That we now can have interaction with you, that we can even know you face to face. And yes, there's a sense where we know you right now as it is, as if dimly in a, in a mirror. But we know one day, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we will know you just as you know us. And that as we ponder your word, and as we grow close to your son in Jesus Christ, we also grow in our knowledge of you.
And just as they became stiff-necked like the golden calf they worshipped, so we're being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that good work, and we ask that it would continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.